0: Yeah, then uh, I would tell we were talking about protecting his voice and that's that's how it got there, I think. Well look, nothing is more D three than someone who has talents outside of the game, right? I think we all have to in order to get by. Unless you're Pierre Garcon. Yeah, well that was a very I think he's a free agent, by the way. He has and he has skills anyway, so and or pizza places, I guess. Something like that.
1: True, true, true. See? D three?
0: Very much so. This is how we do it.
1: Are you going to sing that in baritone? This is how we do it. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan.
0: You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. We're the largest division with the smallest schools, and I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host Keith McMillan has been here for all of this stuff, including all the podcast. Keith, welcome back. We're having a podcast.
1: Thanks. Glad to be back. I'm Keith. I'm the former cornerback who now looks more like a defensive end, but. Uh, or maybe offensive line. At this point, we're uh, we're getting there. But uh, it's been a month, Pat, or a little longer than a month. And a couple folks on Twitter asking where we were. We are not dead. We're just uh, deep in the world of full-time work, and so it's a little harder to get together to pod in um, in the off-season. But I think we got a pretty good lineup for you because uh, we got about six weeks of uh, stuff to talk about.
0: Yeah, that's true. I guess if you give us an extra few weeks, uh, then more things happen. That gives us more content to put in there. It makes me wonder how we're ever going to do 32 podcasts in the finals, in those 16 weeks of the regular season. I'm thinking if you notice that we didn't do a podcast in April, you could probably take that as a sign as it's going to be really difficult for us to do two podcasts a week in this upcoming season. As much as I really enjoyed that second podcast, it's killing me to think that we might not be able to do it. Well, yeah, but the the theory behind it was to to take
1: an hour of podcasting a week or an hour ten an hour fifteen and break it into two things so we could do a little bit better job looking ahead later in the week and uh, and just kind of stick to quick review on Sunday night and then Thursday or or what have you uh, look forward. But it's uh, always easier said than done to keep it to a to about a half hour.
0: Yeah, I don't know how that's going to happen, uh, but we'll uh, we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. Welcome to the May podcast, a May podcast following yet another NFL draft in which no Division three player got drafted. Uh, it has been, well, it's been yet another year that makes it uh, four years in a row that uh, no Division three football player has gotten drafted. But as we have said multiple times on this podcast, it's not the only entry point into the NFL uh, especially for a Division three player, London Fletcher wasn't drafted, and how long did he play in the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're looking, if you're a fan of UW. Whitewater or the Tampa Bay Bucks with uh, Whitewater All America Center Nate Truin, then you know, you know he's got he's a guy who's got a chance. Uh, you, folks like uh, Jared Ruth, who uh, went to the Detroit Lions minicamp. Tyler Sigler went to minicamp with the Giants, got a free agent contract out of it. Uh, he's a uh, you know, a cornerback for Wheaton. Uh, North Park had a player who uh, blocked six kicks last season. He signed with the Niners after having a tryout camp there. These are not the only guys either who uh, have their NFL careers, you know, right in front of them, right in their hands, right now. Yeah,
2: the
1: the thing I thought was most interesting about draft weekend for D three, besides of course no players being picked, and usually you can you can get a feel for it as it leads up to it, whether there's any buzz around a, a particular. Division three player when one is about to be drafted, and so we thought this uh, this was probably going to be a year where uh, people were going to to rookie mini camps to try out get tryout invites would be signed after the draft. The thing I thought was the most interesting was that you have players from the elite D three program. So you have an All American center from from UW Whitewater in Nate Truen. You have um, Mountain Union wide receiver Jared Ruth. You have a cornerback from Wheaton in Tyler Sigler. All guys who uh, went to the NFL in one form or another, you know, not everybody who gets a, a mini camp invite or a tryout camp invite or rookie camp uh, lasts. And even those, you know, NFL rosters are at 90 during the summer. They'll get down to 53 before games start. But I thought it was neat that, um, you know, that Carthage safety, Amani Dennis, a guy who is um, 5'11, 175, got an invite. St. Norbert kicker, Spencer Thompson Myers. Um, and there was, an, uh, there was another uh, player that I wanted to mention.
0: Maybe Jordan Powell from Widener?
1: Jordan Powell from Widener, although he was All-American. I think it was actually David Simmons, the North Park defensive back, who you talked about. So whether you're at North Park or Carthage, whether you're a kicker, whether you're an All-American center for one of the elite programs in D3 or a wide receiver for, from a team that played in the Stag Bowl, as we say frequently in this podcast and, and as we try to encourage the players who listen and occasionally when we have players who've gone through this process when we have them on uh, they tell us the same thing that if you grind hard enough if you're good enough the uh, the pro leagues will find you and then it's on you to make the most of your opportunity
0: I'm if maybe you were thinking about DJ Coker the tackle from Rhodes who signed with the Texans as a center well I think also a great sign is that we keep coming up with names off the off the top
1: of our heads that uh, guys who uh, have opportunities in the NFL and even if they don't stick right away you know, the, the have an agent. Your name is in the uh, pipeline. You've got a, a chance in a tryout camp. And, and not everyone will stick, but a couple guys will impress and maybe make rosters in the fall. Oh, I have to go full
0: disclosure.
2: Full disclosure is the game that we play.
0: I have our story on the website in front of me. Otherwise, I probably not would not have remembered DJ Cooker off the top of my head. One of the other big topics that has been swirling around Division Three over the course of the last month and a half is about the fate of the University of St. Thomas and the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. We're not going to talk about that here in this part of the podcast, and Keith and I will devote a full segment to it in a little bit. So we've got, uh, you know, there's not been a lot that's actually happened out in the open. A lot of it is speculation, and uh, we'll be uh, we'll be talking about that. Keith also, we've uh, put out, you know, 2019 football schedules on the site you and I highlighted a few games of note in our last podcast. And, and since then, you know, we've gotten a look at the first Buffalo state schedule in the Liberty league in which they're still playing St. John Fisher, Utica, Brockport, and Cortland and non-conference play. And then a full slate of Liberty league games. That sounds like a pretty fun schedule for those guys.
1: Yeah. I and mean, I think it's always interesting when you're, when you're uh, moving around and playing some new folks, but also Buffalo state uh, being able to stay in, Upstate New York, I think, for the people around that program, makes it easy for them to follow. I think as we, and we'll talk about this a little bit when we get into the St. Thomas discussion, but part of what makes teams such good fits in certain conferences is having those regional rivalries and being able to to follow closely, to being, being able to work with alumni from the rival schools that you're playing and that sort of thing.
0: If you're looking for a game still, contact Wesley. They will have... At the moment, consecutive bye weeks in week three and week four, unless somebody steps up to play them. They've got nine games on the schedule, and one of them is against Franklin Pierce, whom, if you have not heard of them, that's because they're a brand new football program and they participate in NCAA Division II. And when we come back, we'll be chatting with Nate Mill, and he's the head coach at Muhlenberg. Pronunciation 101. Beautavistic, Monon Bell. Beautavistic! Gio, Gallardi, German aerial. We'll also chat with Chris Martin. He's the outgoing commissioner of the CCIW on the Nate Milne conversation. I want to note that it starts with some of our pre-conversation. And I usually record the pre-conversation for, let's say, quality assurance purposes.
2: Tell him I can hear. Tell him I can hear this.
0: But I don't consider it part of what is the uh, the on the record interview. However, I did ask him for permission to use the opening anecdote and he agreed. So we'll be back with that in just a moment.
3: in our I'm naturally a baritone but in our choir I had to be a, a second bass is mostly what I sang um, not a lot of guys could get real deep I and um, and so I had to I had to suck it up and when we had performances I would like not talk the whole day um, and you know just try to keep it as low as I can. Like the first thing you wake up, you know, you, you sing in the shower and it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how low my voice is. Right. And so I would try to keep that throughout the whole day so that, you know, when we're performing at six o'clock at night, I wasn't uh, I wasn't a tenor uh, at that point.
0: <laughs> you don't want to get too warmed up in a situation like that.
3: Not a, not a, not a chance, you know. When, when we're singing uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic or something like that, then you got to get those... Deep low notes at the very end. It's yeah. uh, you gotta you gotta save it up.
0: Uh, I am a first tenor, so in if I'm in church in the morning, there's not much call for first tenors in regular old uh, Catholic church services. So yeah, um, I'm the same sort of thing to get th- those the
3: notes that everybody wants to hear. You know, as a second base, the other one was you had a lot of forgiveness because nobody really gave a crap about it, right? You're just you're just a baseline and uh the the tenors and the sopranos are what everybody wants to hear.
0: Maybe, but if you're singing a cappella music then uh you you need to hear the bass otherwise you're not going to stay in tune.
1: That's
3: true. And that's what we were. We were a uh, we were an all a cappella select choir that that performed. We went all over London. It was it was really really cool.
0: Well, that is not how I expected to start this conversation.
3: <laughs> that's all right. You know, that's that's the way that always goes. It's part of the deal here.
0: Now with the D3football.com around the nation podcast we're joined by Nate Milne, the head coach at Muhlenberg. and coach thanks for taking the time.
3: Thank you guys so much. It's it's great to be on the podcast.
0: Uh obviously a great season for you guys last year but uh everybody on this podcast and of course lots of people around Division 3 of course you know uh great uh friends and uh people who just really respected Mike Donnelly. What was what was it like kind of being the guy who was then tasked to transition Muhlenberg into its new era of football
3: it was i think you hear the old saying that you never want to be the man to replace the man and for us that couldn't be further from the truth um coach donnelly really showed us a blueprint for how to do everything how to carry yourself and I felt as though it, it was certainly the expectations and maybe when, when people are watching you, you, you feel a little bit of that, but as far as what we did on a day-to-day basis, as far as how we ran our offense, how we ran our defense, how we ran our special teams and our strength conditioning program, it was, um, a pretty good transition. Uh, it helps obviously when you have some really, really good football players to make that happen. And, and so, so far so good. In year one, I think, you know, the challenge will be Duke did this for 20 years and uh, and really got better almost every single year. What a great run they had in 07 and 08 and and never really dipped down uh, except for maybe one season in there. And so I think the, the longevity is something that now you, you strive for. You know, you, you got day one and year one uh, out of the way and now how as coaches you build upon that how as coaches you do that every single year like coach donnelly did is going to be the biggest challenge um it was such a whirlwind as every football season is that you never think about that kind of stuff and then when you have a time to reflect upon it you get that sense of wow we really accomplished something um, and then to do it in the first year as a head coach you go wow that was pretty cool and I joked at our recruiting days that I thought about retiring uh, on several instances um, <laughs> because now if, if we just make the sweet 16 or we, we go eight and two and miss the playoffs like I, I feel like I'm on the hot seat now um, you know after doing what we did replacing duke and uh, all that kind of stuff you're going well well where do we go from here so you know i think i'm going to be good for next season but you know if if we go and and have a magical run like we did you know there there's a chance that we just call it and and i start selling insurance or something like that <laughs>
0: Obviously, there's a big rivalry for you guys in the Centennial Conference, but I know there's a lot of camaraderie between coaches and institutions have a lot of uh, similarities in a lot of conferences, especially yours. What kind of like advice or what would you say to the folks at Johns Hopkins who are obviously going through a, a big transition this year?
3: That's a great question, Pat. Uh, I think I would just tell them to to go about their normal daily activity and make their best decisions for the football program with any great football coach like coach Margraff and coach Donnelly. They took it one day at a time. And and that's not to deflect the question, but we did that here. I know Coach Margraff did that there. And you just think about your football program uh, and your, your student athletes on a daily basis. What do they need? What does your team need to put them into the best possible position? And then the other one is, is you can't compare one coach to the next and i know that's really really hard in in the year after um but i I know coach Kimer is going to do a great job there and and he's had a lot of staff transition and you know they may end up being better next year they may end up being worse uh but that's a a, just a, a wonderful program at a wonderful institution and uh i know that Coach Kimerup will will do a a wonderful job and their alumni will do a wonderful job supporting that program.
0: You know, their run last year, your run last year really kind of uh, accentuates what I think we've seen about Centennial Conference football in the last several years is that it's been, you know, on a, on a growth cycle, it's continually getting better. And what do you, what's your take on the status of the Centennial kind of now going into the 2019 season with you guys coming off those big runs?
3: I couldn't agree more. I said it last year. I think there are some newspaper articles. I think there are some interviews on TV. Um, I I don't want to say I was Nostradamus and predicted this, um, but I knew that this was as good as the Centennial Conference has ever been. We've got really, really good coaches. And then probably more important than that is we have great institutions, the student athletes that we are recruiting believe in the education that that we and all the schools in the Centennial Conference offer them. It's not just one school is elite. Every single school in this conference is elite. The coaches are, are fantastic. The facilities are great. And so it is the expectations are really high. I think in the Centennial Conference in general, uh, I think they have a chance to win a national title in lacrosse. I think they have a chance to to win uh, a lot of games in baseball. Um, We saw the run uh, in men's basketball uh, that the Centennial Conference had. So I I think it's across the board that the conference is outstanding. And again, we had five teams uh, with at least eight wins a year ago, which is crazy to think about. Um, So I think the expectations are are really, really high next year for the conference as well. I, I don't see any of the teams that had at least five wins or eight wins taking a step back, and I don't see any of the teams that didn't reach that plateau getting any worse. Uh, It it is going to be a fierce competition, and I think in in a couple of the years past, as you mentioned, it was – Muhlenberg knocking off an FM or an Ersinus or Susquehanna knocking off one of those teams to keep somebody out of the playoffs. Um, I believe that if FNM got in two years ago, they could have won a first round game and potentially a second round game, depending on how the draw goes. Everybody knows it's a lot about the draw uh, in that bracket um, when when it comes tournament time. And uh, and, and we had a, a great draw uh, a year ago. And, and so I think, it really is fantastic and you're you're not far from from being a national competitor when you're in our conference and so i would say the expectations are high and and i would not be surprised if hopefully we get two teams in again next year if if somebody goes 10 and 0 and somebody goes 9 and 1 um and then to see both of those teams win a first round game and then as you guys know after the first round it is um it is quite quite competitive and everybody is really really, really good in that second round. And and then obviously the further you get, the more elite the, the, the tournament really, really gets. So I think expectations are sky high. The
0: conference is really good. The academics are really good. And it's
3: across the board in all the sports.
0: They have to be sky high expectations for Muhlenberg as a program too. You guys have won... Of course, uh, that string of uh, six seasons where you won eight or nine games, 11 games last year. And then, you know, looking at just the guys who were all conference last year, you know, 12 of those 15 guys are, are uh, well, weren't seniors, so underclassmen in some sense.
3: Yeah, we have tried not to talk about that stuff uh, <laughs> in the offseason. We just, again, have told our guys we got to work harder and, you know, to really focus on our day one opponent you know i think it's there it's everybody knows again that you know we return a lot of players but this is a funny game where you're one or two guys away from, from not being good and this conference is so competitive that we're one game away and, and the NCAA playoffs are, are so competitive that 9-1 you may not get in um, and so you can't just set a goal of doing what you did last year or being better than what you did last year you're never going to accomplish that or you're going to leave yourself disappointed um, we have high expectations every single year. Um, and then we'll set those goals and try to knock those goals off uh, one week at a time uh, in our league and in our non-conference play. And then, you know, sh- should we get in and do that kind of stuff, then, then we'll readjust our goals from there. Um, but it seemed to, to work out for us last year, taking it one day at a time. But yeah, we've got some great players coming back. Frank Feaster is a monster. Ryan Curtis is a monster. Uh, Mike Nikowski is uh, a really dynamite quarterback and uh, only going to get better, Uh, and especially facing such really good teams last year. I think that's where your quarterback play can continue to get better, and it's a quarterback-driven game and a defensively-driven game, and so for Mike to see Delaware Valley and Randolph Macon and Mount Union, uh, and then for us to play Johns Hopkins every single year, I mean, those are our elite teams where where he's seeing the best of the best, and now we will make uh, some adjustments to what he does really, really well and then what our program needs to do to, to
1: improve upon last season. So when you guys were talking about baritone and bass, I was about as lost as you are when uh, <laughs> Coach <laughs> Kanzaro and I are talking about Wu-Tang and uh, OutKast and uh, – and, and, uh tribe called quest so it uh now I know what it feels like to have the shoe on the other foot but I thought it oozed it seeped authenticity that you
0: guys really uh
1: enjoy your opportunity to sing well, in the choir
0: I am uh, I was uh, I, I couldn't help but laugh because I could tell about a third of the way into that anecdote that that was where your uh, analogy was going well yeah <laughs> as it should right um, but I, I thought he was actually uh super interesting interesting
1: for a a good 12 and a half minutes and and he echoed some of the things i had uh heard coach chimera say when i talked to him um for the street and smith's uh preview uh he's the johns hopkins head coach and he had talked a a little bit about having this relationship with uh with nate milne um having now he's getting ready to go through in replacing jim margraf what what coach Millen had to go through in replacing Mike Donnelly and um, replacing is, is really not the right word as uh, as both guys have said to us that, you know, you're, you're following in someone's footsteps, but it's also someone who taught you, I don't want to say everything, you know, but pretty close to it. Uh, you feel to some degree, I think it sounds like they feel like they have to to carry on what was um what was built? And in, in Nate's case, in Coach Milne's case, it, Muhlenberg had maybe its, its best season, uh, certainly one of the best ones that, that we can remember them having. And so um, to go sort of a step further uh, with everything that that coach built, I think, was was pretty great, a pretty great way to honor him. But he, he made that very similar point that uh, the coach chimera made and that you know you're only a step away or or you know, a couple plays at the end of a game away from or an injury away from being 8 and 2 out of the playoffs and then all of a sudden everyone says well you you won 11 games last year you know what happened and you really you can be almost the same team or almost just as good or or even a little bit better in some areas but you just don't make a certain play at a certain point in the game you finish 9-1, yeah. you missed the postseason. You finish 8-2, and two, you missed the postseason. Missed it by that much. A- and I, I think the depth they talked about in the Centennial.
0: C-M-T-M-N-I-L.
1: Really and truly is there. Every coach says their conference is tough from top to bottom. But you look at uh, Susquehanna, Franklin and Marshall, and, and in some years, you know, or Sinus or another team uh, w- will be right in the mix as well. And So you're looking at four or five tough games for the top team in the conference and not just one team we have to beat and we're good.
0: Yeah, but he rattled off uh, just an amazing list of guys who are coming back. And there are very few players who were all-conference seniors for Muhlenberg – last year. I know there are often expectations at Muhlenberg because they've won eight, you know, eight games or more or in that ballpark for several years running. And they're always in competition with Johns Hopkins for that top spot. But now off of a run to the national quarterfinals, having all those guys back. I don't know where you put them in Street and Smiths. I don't know where they're going to be in our preseason poll, but they should be pretty high. Yeah, I, I remember actually giving it some thought whether I put them high enough
1: it's it's tough because you figure you're you're ranking hopkins which uh brings back a lot of key freshmen or guys who were freshmen last season who were who play who played significant roles yeah. will be back on the defense and at tight end and then you bring back an all-american level quarterback you already have one centennial team that's going to be in the top five most most people's ballots you're going to put two centennial teams in the top ten one, two, well, some of us are because uh, because they really do deserve it. As uh, as Coach mentioned, great quarterback back. You have two guys who are All-American uh, caliber players who were All-Americans last season, who will probably start the season as D3Football.com, All-Americans and tight end Ryan Curtis, defensive end Frankie Feaster, who uh, feasted on my alma mater in, uh, in that second round postseason game with the four sacks. So um, it's so interesting to listen to both coaches say, Essentially, we're loaded, but we're afraid we might not, you know, we might not even get back to the postseason if we don't play well at certain points and in certain games during the season. And that really does speak to uh, the centennial becoming a little bit more like some of the conferences across the country that from year to year have four great teams at the top or can go, you know, five, six, seven games deep. There have been years, you know, the CCIW comes to mind where. CCIW starts uh, conference play and all the teams are 3-0 and or there's six and 3-0 teams, a 2-1 and team, and North Park is 1-2 and or something like that. Like there, There'll be years where, where conferences are four, five, six teams deep, and I, I think uh, that could be the case again with the Centennial, even with the two super
0: strong top 10-ish teams at the top. Keith Sutton us up for the segue. We'll be back with more on the CCIW in just a minute. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by the CCIW Commissioner, Chris Martin, the CCIW, the College Conference of Illinois and Wisconsin. And uh, Chris has been the Commissioner of the CCIW for the past 17 years and is going to be stepping down here at the end of this academic year. Chris, I really appreciate your time and thanks for joining me on the podcast.
2: Pat, thanks so much for having me. I'm always happy to visit with you.
0: We really appreciate it. You have been, of course, involved in Division Three football, not just from the commissioner's standpoint and the commissioner of a uh, of a prominent conference in Division Three across sports, but also as a member of the Division Three football committee. And you know, you've kind of just been in Division Three fairly up close for about the same amount of time that we have been. So I thought it would be good right. to kind of pick your brain and, you know, get your take on kind of the big picture of Division three and Division three football here as kind of a, I don't know, a, a debrief or an exit interview or something along those lines. <laughs>
2: that sounds great. An exit interview for me would be a unique one. That sounds good, though.
0: Are you saying that the, uh, the athletic directors or the presidents are not giving you a, a debrief on the way out the door?
2: Oh, they certainly have. i like to think of it a little bit di- differently in, in terms of our conversation, but certainly per- trying to prepare Marine Hardy to take the take the reins here in the CCIW certainly has been uh, a large part of my time over the last several weeks and it certainly will be in the next next few weeks as Marine comes into office on July 1st.
0: This is the time of year that we kind of uh, on the D3 hoops and uh, D3 football side kind of refer to as the silly season. It's a time of year where lots of conference affiliations changes. Uh, get announced Uh, the cciw has been fairly stable in this regard over the course of the past 20 years carol came back to the conference obviously for all sports and i know you guys have picked up a lot of um affiliate members in uh, individual sports including football so you guys are now having already been a fairly stable conference you feel like you guys are fully invested or fully vested you know what i mean you're fully staffed out in football you've got 10 teams and there's not really room for anybody else
2: yeah, that's certainly true, Pat. Um, the conference has certainly been around a long time. We've really had a long, stable membership. Obviously, with depart, Carol's departure back in 92, was the last time we welcomed them back a couple of years ago. And certainly, thrilled to have WashU join us. Uh, so, we, everybody's always happier in football when you have an even, even number of teams. Um, And certainly I think at this point, I don't see the conference really doing a whole lot in terms of football, 10 strong football schools. I think folks are really happy with that number. It gets a little trickier when you get a little bit bigger than 10, 11 and 12 in terms of scheduling. Um, So I don't really see the conference changing much in terms of the football. Certainly with 10, I think folks are really happy with that.
0: Football fans tend to look at this solely through the eyes of football, and at the Division One level, obviously, conference affiliation changes are probably pretty much driven by football. How much of that do you think is uh, the case at the Division Three level, or are is it really just something where all sports are uh, considered when they when school when conferences and schools are making these affiliation changes?
2: That's a really good question, Pat. It's certainly from the, from the CCIW standpoint, we, we look at all sports, and I think that's true um, in most cases in Division 3 They're really looking, looking to look up at the whole big picture, not just football. Obviously, we don't have the financial carrot, the financial aspect that Division One has. So I think it really is a whole holistic view of the entire conference and all the sports you're looking at. I mean, conferences are such unique structures. They're formed for so many different reasons. Um, and depending on the conference, the neck or the region of the country, they all have sort of different connections so it's been interesting as you say sort of the silly season it's been interesting to see sort of some of the dominoes fall and some of the conversations going along and um, I think a lot of that really goes back to your question about that it really is a sort of a holistic type of view it's not just football it's basketball it's softball it's soccer um, it's cross country I mean it's really all of those sports that are all part of the picture when you're looking at conference membership.
0: When we started this website back in the late 90s and when you became a commissioner in that time frame as well, there were a lot of schools playing uh, independent schedules in football. And then we went through this process where, as Keith would put it, everybody kind of conferenced up. Everybody uh, is basically affiliated with a conference at this point uh, that gets them a chance at an automatic bid. And now it seems to me like we may be seeing another round of this where conferences or schools are trying to get into conferences where they have – 10 teams for football instead of 8 as you talk with other commissioners of other conferences around division 3 do you see that do you see that schools are are trying to are trying to seek that
2: yeah, I think, I think that's certainly true, Pat. That's, that's when you tend to look at the little more sports specific approach to things rather than the holistic all t- all sports across um, the entire sports sponsorship spectrum. Um, but it certainly is interesting as institutions and conferences thinking about strategically, what does it mean for our teams in terms of access? What does it mean in terms of our teams for additional access beyond the AQ, certainly in football and some of the other sports? And I certainly think that's become more of a driver over the last several years. So There's such a strong interest in desire to play in the postseason um, in a number of sports, and maybe there's strategically uh, different approaches or different methods um, to the madness to get into the postseason. And I think all all of our conferences and conference commissioners have had those discussions about access to championships, um, and and that certainly impacts the memberships of, of conferences.
0: In uh, football, we're looking at a situation where uh, this upcoming uh, proposed realignment, which would affect you know a wide variety of Division Three sports, is going to kind of take us out of a you know this traditional alignment that we've had going back farther than I've followed Division Three, where we have four regions and it you know it, it funnels into uh, uh, it funnels into things that way. Uh, you guys, as a, as the CCIW, in some other sports relatively recently got realigned into a region where you guys were competing with the WIAC for regional rankings and that sort of thing and in in some sports that puts you guys head to head in terms of uh, postseason honors for individuals as well but you guys have been separate in football a new realignment might change that do you think that this is a meandering question but uh it's kind of a it's (laughs) it's kind of a big topic is it is uh first off do you think that uh, a realignment is necessary in football
2: You know, I do. I think football is a unique animal compared to all the other sports. So it's it's a bit different um, and it's hard to compare. I think there certainly is a lot of validity in in realigning football um, and trying to be consistent across the board. And certainly the proposed six region format would be pretty consistent. Um, across all regions in terms of numbers. Um, Certainly reduces some of the East, which I think right now is probably about 75 schools and sort of branches things out a little, puts us all more in the 40s-ish range. And I think that's a a positive thing. It certainly will change the game. As you said, historically, football has been a four-region sport. And I think the committee has always operated that way. So it'll be a different way of doing business if you go to six regions and think about how you evaluate those regions. It's such a tough thing to do in football because there's, as as you know, I'm preaching to the choir. In this case, there's so few opportunities to compare regions to teams that really aren't playing teams from other regions, yeah. um, for the most part. And there's such a small sample of of non-conference games, becomes very difficult when you try to compare four regions. It certainly will be more difficult, I think, for the committee to be looking at six regions. Um, so it'll, it'll it'll change the game for the committee and think about it. I, as I said, I do think it's a positive thing in terms of trying to be consistent with in regions it'll just to make it i think more difficult to try to compare six regions you have six teams on the board and now you're looking at six re- six regions um and a variety of stats and and so forth that it 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 will be it will be certainly a different challenge
0: yeah, and you of course uh, spent several years on the national committee what's the what's the dynamic of that conversation like when you guys are coming down to those final at large spots
2: it, it it's 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 difficult. It's such a hard thing to do with, Pat. There's so few at-large bids in football, and there's so many good teams that unfortunately get left out. That is such a difficult thing to really dive into that. And each of us with two people currently from each region talking about – teams in the region and trying to compare how, to, how to, to school from the north region compared to the south region, the east region. It's so hard <laughs> to try to do that. and are really just trying to drill it down the numbers and try to think about what are the regional rankings and what are our racks are saying about the teams in that region. Um it's, it's a difficult thing. It really is a challenging conversation. It's, and from a committee standpoint, probably not one of the more fun things because you, you do have to leave out some schools um, and some really good football teams to get left out. And obviously, all things being equal, you know, the brackets and other stuff may be a little bit different, but that's, you know, that's not the way the game is played at this point. So um, it's a really difficult conversation, Pat, and you really get into looking at the teams, the region, the regional rankings and all of the, the records the regional ranked teams. all that good information that you have. At some point, you really just have to say, "Okay, this is what we think is the right one. And I I commend the committee the last couple of years. They've done a really good job of of selecting teams. But it it is a really difficult and and challenging conversation at the end because, as I said, you you certainly do leave out some teams that are, are certainly deserving of playing in the postseason.
0: Yeah, I mean, you guys as a CCIW last year had three two-loss teams, any of whom could have been on the table depending on you know how they chose to arrange the table for for lack of a better True. term. Um, is, is it uh, what's it like? You know, what do your coaches say to you, or what kind of you know what kind of feedback do you get from them as a guy who has been in the room for those decisions, and then you know now as you know representing a, a power conference, so to speak.
2: Well, I can tell you, Pat, depends on the year, the type of comments that I get from our coaches when I was on the committee. (laughs) Certainly people being pleased or not pleased with having to get a pick in. Um, I think, at least in my standpoint, I've really tried to be transparent with my ADs or my coaches who ask specific questions about – who got in and who didn't get in. Um, and I think there's a general understanding, a level of understanding and how difficult that it is for the committee to pick teams to so look at where you were ranked in your region and how do you compare it to the other teams in the region and other parts of the country that really coaches just ask for that. In some cases I, I, I provide that information even before um, sort of those questions come up. Now that I'm off the committee, I think I certainly still have a good understanding of how it plays out um, and being able to say, hey, these are the tools that the committee has in front of them to look at, and they, and these are the things they chose to focus on. Certainly, we'd like to think that we're among the stronger conferences in Division Three, and certainly would say our second place team should always be in. It. We realize that's not always the case, and last year was certainly a challenging year for us um, in terms of these, the two lost teams and so forth. So, I think the, the CCIW as a whole will always do well when it comes to postseason, just because our teams have have been successful in the, across the region, and we do well in the region when playing non conference games as well. So, it, it's it, it's, a, it's a level of understanding I think for my ads and my coaches just to understand these are the tools that the committee has and try to provide some perspective on that.
0: As things progress here, you know, we're getting to a point where we'll have a number of automatic bids that's going to leave us with a very small number of at-large bids, and basically the entire at-large conversation is going to get pretty tight. Do you anticipate or do you ever hear any talk, or did the committee ever participate in any talk while you were on it about maybe changing the way automatic qualification is handled in football compared to other D3 sports?
2: Um, Pat, that's a good question. We really, that I recall, didn't have much discussion about how that how that played out. I mean, the for process, when it was obviously put to adopt, it was all part of a package that went across all the sports. And I think most conference commissioners would tell you that there certainly was some benefit. Um, in some sports and potentially a detriment on the other side for other sports. Um, When I think of some of our sports that may may not be as strong as we are for football or men's basketball or or some of the other strong sports we've been in, it it, it helped us in tennis. It's helped us in some other sports that, um, that we traditionally may not have gotten teams in. So we really didn't have much discussion that I recall about changing the way the EQ process works. Um, you know, there, there's always the access versus um, quality of teams that are in there. And that, that, that's just that's part of the deal of operating business in Division Three. when you see some of the first round games with teams who, who got uh, who got automatic some conferences that traditionally not have, have not been as strong and are playing some strong conference teams. The game's unfortunately pretty lopsided. And I certainly get both sides of the argument between access and quality of the teams that are in there. And I think the committee certainly understands that that's part of the price of doing business in Division Three, When you only have 32 teams that are getting in, um, it certainly makes it, it makes it a challenge, but we didn't have many discussions that I recall about trying to think about how to we change the AQ the process. I can tell you my conference, and we've had some conversations that committees have about, is there a way we can expand the brackets? Is there some way that we can make a little bit different, not necessarily change the EQ process, but try to change the bracket size? Unfortunately, we were never able to come up with something that seems to make sense, yeah. and I think the committee recognized that and that conversations take place. It's just not... Because football is such a different elephant coming to the other sports, it's a really difficult thing to try to put in a place that makes sense for everybody. Um, And I I would hope that folks will continue to try to explore that potential process. As I said, you're leaving teams out that really, truly deserve to be in there. And that's that's a tough pill for coaches and ADs and student-athletes to swallow. Can have a first round before you really get to the first round. Yeah. So you have you have an additional larger pool of schools that are getting in in there. Um, you know, as you said, you only play one game a week and you're playing 10 games in the season. Are two, would you be, schools be willing to give up their 10th game with the potential of playing some other sort of playoff type of game? Um, I, I would say for most schools, no, probably not. Um, and there certainly is the structure of now you're talking to expanding the championship, making it longer, which has financial impact. It has student athlete. impact impact there's a whole slew of things it is it is as i said a huge animal and it's a difficult animal to try to manage and try to, to, try to fit because it is so different than every other division 3 championship sport
0: right agreed like i could see uh i could see um you know the fcs model in terms of how their bracket is constructed being really great for us in that you know you then you skip over a couple of weeks around the holidays uh, you have an opportunity for teams uh, to book cheaper travel and fans to book cheaper travel uh, with a, a couple weeks' notice um, and that sort of thing. But then you still have two sport athletes in Division Three who are now you know yeah. that you're losing uh, a couple of weeks of basketball or wrestling or whatever. For sure, um, yeah.
2: absolutely, and that makes us pretty unique. I don't think there are many Division One football players that are doing other sports, and that certainly yeah. is unique to Division Three. And it's one of the things that makes my perspective, Division Three great as it is, and certainly that impact carries forward when you're talking about it even when you talk about you know basketball playing a little bit earlier well now you're moving into football time and yeah. there's all those kind of things that move in that that are all part of the process that makes it a little difficult to do um, i can tell you from my time on the committee the weekend after thanksgiving was brutal that was such a tough time for travel for site reps all those kind of things just because of the calendar yeah. played out that way and now you're talking about all those other things or the moving the championship back a couple of weeks. It's it, it it is a it's a difficult thing and there's a lot of moving parts that obviously haven't haven't been figured out how it's going to work perfectly for everybody
0: no good solutions Keith to how to fix our football playoff problem there's no easy way to extend the season and I think even if there were the presidents in division three might not even allow us to have the easy way out but at least it's worth talking about
1: yeah well I mean I think the the obvious thing is to say you're at five weeks. You're at 32 teams. It's already the longest football playoff on the planet. You'd have to get super creative to try to add more teams. You know, you could go maybe to 40 and have eight first-round buys, but it would somehow involve adding another week. Pat, you threw out the suggestion uh, to to put it over into January like uh, like FCS does. I don't know about you, Pat, but it's a grind from pretty much the the – well, not even the beginning uh, of of September for us. More like August, um, sometimes even July. And it's the same way for the players and coaches too. When they report to camp, it's usually mid August. You're going hard all the way through the fall. It's great to be wrapped up by uh, in some cases Thanksgiving for some teams, but for us, that Stag Bowl is over uh, before Christmas, before the the winter holidays. So that part, I love that it's that you know w- w- D three is 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 every week, all week. Um, It would be weird to to try to stretch it. The one theory I thought he brought up that is kind of interesting um, is to have teams. You know, you suggested you give back the tenth game or you replace the tenth game, and and I don't think anybody wants to give it back, right? So so few opportunities as a football player to to play um, Mm -hmm. real games to begin with. Yeah. But what if you went to a nine game season? Certain teams qualified for the playoffs and then everybody else who didn't qualify, you match up for a game in week 10 with a team that, fin- you know, five plays six or, uh, you know, three plays seven in a conference or something like that. Or two conferences like the Mac and the Pack, or the NJAC and the Mac get together and say everybody, this is kind of what they do anyway for ECAC games, right, is you slot teams that finish two and three against each other. Well, you might as well do it like the uh, like the UMAC did. Where you can go all the way down the uh, the 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 order of finish match teams up against each other for their tenth game. That is one way you could potentially shorten the regular season without shortening the regular season. If that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, I mean we can't um, we can't ask teams to give away their bye week. The uh, the medical staff won't uh, won't permit for that. So you couldn't play like ten games in our ten weeks rather than, you know, 10 games in 11 weeks. I just uh, pulled up the FCS schedule to confirm what I had thought was the case. And, yeah, they play their semifinals the week that we play the Stag Bowl, and then they take two full weeks off and play their championship. This past year it was on January 5th. Um, you know, we did that in Division three basketball in uh, 2013, the year that the the – championship game was held with the d1 final four in Atlanta and that's gonna happen again this year coming up in 2020 um you know it I can say from a everyday grind for people like you and me there is an opportunity to breathe and take some time off in there but uh yeah I don't know what uh I don't know what the players would do and I don't know what the coaches would do with a three-week break it's like getting ready for a, a bowl game at the d1 level which is not something that we have a lot of experience with
1: well it's always struck me as weird that you get in you know, football coaches and players are all about routine you know every Sunday as you're off you play Saturday Sunday you're off your rehabilitation you watch a little film Monday you, you you know you might put in a little bit of uh, game plan or whatever Tuesdays like the day you really ramp up Wednesday Thursday Thursday practice styles back Fridays like walkthrough special teams whatever Saturday you play again and you get into that rhythm and you look forward to it every week. You kind of know what you're dealing with. You don't have to kind of tell the team, "All right, today we're doing this." You know, it's always blitz period on Thursdays or whatever. And then you just sort of blow that whole thing up for the uh, to to wait like three weeks to play the most important game of the season seems weird. Yeah, I think we we almost flip it too much back the other way to to have six days between that uh, that semifinal and then to play the championship game on Friday night. The only thing about that is that anticipation boy, you hate waiting you can't wait to play the championship game and so we do get a little sooner uh, and and again we turn around from usually semifinals are some of the best games of the year and then you to turn around and play at stag bowl six days later i think it's great and probably something we don't want to give up um but the reason we're talking about it is to try to open up access not to more conferences because we've got that right we've got conference champions Access every at least one team from every conference has the the ability to get into the postseason. But what happens is the two and three and sometimes the four teams in really strong conferences are the ones who are getting pinched because we don't have enough at large spots. And so you're asking yourself, are we looking at the best 32 teams in the country? I think we've we've pretty much established that we're not looking at the teams that we would rank in our poll from one to 32 if our poll was 32 teams deep. But you're looking at um, teams that won their conference that had the chance to get in, and the reason that is important to preserve is if you don't have that access, then you have somebody on a committee that has to act as a gatekeeper for your conference. Is your conference good enough to get into the postseason? Is your conference good enough to win a game? Do you deserve to play that? Do you deserve that reward? Can you know? Can a Framingham State beat a Cortland State or can a, a Occidental win a playoff game on the road or um, what are some other conferences that have that have kind of randomly won playoff games that we didn't expect Pat I mean to to take the access away means somebody some human being or some computer number formula has to act as a gatekeeper to, to certain conferences and I think that's a thing division three doesn't want we want everything to be decided. On the field, and sometimes that means it's going to be a sixty to zero first round game or a fifty seven two. But the teams get the experience; it, it, they they earn the reward by winning their conference. And as you get to rounds two, three, and four, usually the games improve. The the cream uh, sort of rises to the top, and and we've we've generally gotten pretty good quarterfinals, semifinals, and stag bowls over the past ten or fifteen years.
0: Yeah, we are entitled to 36 teams in the playoffs by Division Three playoff rules. We're supposed to have one playoff spot for every six and a half schools that sponsor the sport. And with uh, 247 minus the NESCAC, which doesn't want to participate, that would still give us four more at-large bids. That's what we're getting shorted right now.
1: Yeah, but again the the question is is uh not what we do with those bids cuz we could certainly find four deserving teams to take those spots. It's how do you you wedge those extra games into the into the postseason, you know, maybe you could play uh every 6 days or something. I don't I don't know, I haven't looked at the the math on that whether that would even speed it up enough, but I think over 5 weeks I'd give you at least five extra. You know, you might be able to 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 stretch without stretching the time too much you could put extra games in there but it, it it's really a uh, a difficult challenge if you want to go past 32 because you're already at five weeks of playoff as it is for a 11-week season so the playoffs for the two teams that get the opportunity to go all the way um that that's really an extra half season and if, if you've ever listened to our podcast ever before <laughs> we've definitely mentioned <laughs> that uh that peculiarity
0: that's got to be the uh, that's got to be in the podcast drinking game at some point
1: Sure, that you get an extra season of, a half season of practice if you make it to the Stag Bowl. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Hey, is this thing on? Hey, it's Pat Coleman here from the future. I got to drop in and say this. A mere 11 hours after we dropped this podcast, the MIAC announced the results of the discussions and that indeed the University of St. Thomas had been uh, involuntarily removed from the conference effective the end of the spring of 2021. All of the discussion that uh, Keith and I are about to have was related to the issues behind this, especially as it related to football. Now, uh, sit back, relax, and we'll uh, rejoin podcast 237 already in progress. So if you're still with us 50 plus minutes into this podcast, thanks for doing that. We appreciate it. We're going to chat right now about the uh, situation with the University of St. Thomas and the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. (laughs) If you haven't followed us on Twitter, that's where we've been talking about this primarily, but the thumbnail sketch is basically that uh, a handful of uh, university and college presidents in the MIAC have floated the uh, possibility of changing the conference bylaws in order to make the University of St. Thomas ineligible for membership in the conference, and then uh, they would then uh, vote St. Thomas out for being in violation of the bylaws in the conference. St. Thomas has about uh, 6,000 uh, full-time undergraduate students, putting it on par with uh, Chapman and uh, with Ithaca in terms of Division Three schools, which are private schools, which are of that size and have football. Um, obviously, a bunch of state schools in Division Three also are that large, and a bunch of state schools are much smaller than that. Uh, but this is something that has been uh, bandied about. It's been talked about a lot. Especially in the part of the country where I live, because uh, I live in I live in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and it's been a big topic of conversation here, uh, not only among regular people but also in the media. Here's what we know: we really don't know anything. <laughs> That's the problem. Uh, the uh, the initial uh, The initial reporting that uh, St. Olaf's president uh, had, uh, you know, was was spearheading this campaign. Uh, you know, is uh, is as solid reporting as uh, as we can get. Uh, the the guy who reported that for the Star Tribune here in Minneapolis, Pat Roycey is an award winning uh, uh, an award winning journalist, and he has really good context. He covers the small colleges and everything in the state pretty uh, pretty well. Since then, since that initial report, which is more than a month ago, basically nobody's talking. Nobody's talking on the record uh the the star tribune did a whole piece a couple of weeks ago around an email that was leaked that the augsburg university president uh wrote which seemed to give reluctant support for keeping for kicking st thomas out of the uh out of the conference the star tribune has resorted to interviewing me on the record as possibilities for what st thomas could do but it, it seems as much a uh a foregone conclusion is anything, which of course, you know, we go back to the beginning and this is just baffling because nothing like this has really happened in division three. The last time that I could think of that a school got kicked out of a conference for being too good was when Wheaton got kicked out of the, the uh, CCI before it was the CSCIW back in like the fifties. Cause they were dominant in basketball. This still to me is just mind boggling, Keith. Yeah, it's, definitely mind-boggling
1: because it's a charter member of a conference that seems to be essentially a, a perfect fit geographically. It has things in common with other conference schools, whether it's the uh, the, the Catholic part or the the longtime rivalries, the, the regional the geographic distance between St. Thomas again in, in the Minneapolis St. Paul area and um, you know schools in Northfield, um, the St. Cloud area, really, there's only one pretty long road trip in uh, in, in that conference, which is to, to go to Concordia Moorhead. So it's a, it's a fit in a lot of ways. And really, from a person who's you know two or three steps removed, uh, what it looks like from afar is that certain schools are tired of losing, yeah. and that is a little. I mean, that's kind of a it's just a weird reason to want to upend the whole entire thing, because you have to remember, right, even if football is a driver, conference moves affect all sports. And St. Thomas across the board has been the most successful athletic department in the MIAC for the past decade plus. But at the same time, they're not so dominant in all sports that the other MIAC schools can't compete. And so you have to ask, like, how is the conference better by kicking St. Thomas out? Sure, you spread the wealth and the quote unquote success. Other schools winning the conference is nice. But if you're taking the program that lifts all boats out, are my schools going to fare well once they make the postseason? You know, football, they'd probably be fine, but across the board? And then, and I think much like the OAC and conferences from the Pacific Northwest to New York and New Jersey and the Mid Atlantic. Part of what makes conferences great is that proximity, the great rivalries, being the kind of school that competes to recruit the same sorts of kids that go to the other schools in the conference. And then, you know, you want to have alumni that that move and flock to the same economic centers and urban areas so that the rivalries remain strong even after graduation. And and St. Thomas qualifies on all those counts for, for the MIAC including right now what's become the most prominent rivalry in Division Three, at least on, on the football side when it comes to filling the, the seats with the Tommy Johnny game. And, and I guarantee you, St. John's doesn't want any part of losing that game. So they're going to play that game regardless of whether um, St. Thomas is, is still on the MIAC. But I, I think you can tell a lot by who's talked and who hasn't talked. And, and it's Pat, you made the point that there are very few Nuggets trickling out here, but uh, in one of the very first pieces, Bethel's football coach Steve Johnson was happy to go on the record. Well, Bethel beat St. Thomas in, in football, so you know they seem fine. Uh, St. John's, of course, wants St. Thomas around, and so I think the the everyone else is, is are the schools you can sort of assume are, are behind it, or at least um, or at least
0: interested. Yeah, uh, there's a group. Uh, of course, this is a very active topic on our message board on D3boards.com. The uh, the schools that have been the uh, and are ex- believed to be or expected to be the most vocal proponents of this uh, have been dubbed the coalition of losers.
1: Yeah, and look, I've coached overmatched teams in youth sports, and it's no fun to lose big. but. You still learn life lessons, you still form great relationships on on teams that lose, you make great memories, and win or lose, most people are better for participating in athletics. So the Mike has to ask itself, why is it even sponsoring sports at the D three level again? Is it solely to win, to, to spread the wealth so everybody can win a little bit? Is that what they're they're sponsoring for? You know, is the OAC better if it kicks out Mountain Union? Is uh, the American Southwest better if Mary Harden-Baylor's gone? What if the WIAC had decided after 10 years it couldn't keep up with UW-Whitewater and the other guys were going to take their balls and go home? Well, then you don't end up with the year that UW-Oshkosh gets to that level and goes to the Stag Bowl. Or, you know, the years where Harden-Simmons and Texas, Texas Lutheran can go toe-to-toe with UMHB or when Ohio Northern – or John Carroll upset Mountain Union. So there are situations where there's a dominant team in a conference and that domination lasts for a decade. It crosses over uh, into other sports. It's not just necessarily football, but that there's something about having that group or having that team that everyone else needs to shoot for that that lifts everyone else. And we've talked about this over the years with, uh, with coaches from Heidelberg and Ohio Northern and and John Carroll and say, look, we know football beginning of the season, we got we have to try to beat Mount Union. And if we're not recruiting with with trying to beat the best, then what are we even doing? And, and I I think, you know, St. Thomas and St. John's and, and Bethel some years are in the few group of teams that can compete at that level. And uh and for the for the you know the Hamlin and the Gustavus and Augsburg and St. Olaf they uh, they've got to figure out how to either get to that level, and and you know Concordia Moorhead has has been able to compete with the Big Four. Uh, they've got you know the the other schools have to either figure out how to how to get to that level at least once in a while, or uh, or they decide they want to have a conference that doesn't necessarily compete on a, on a national level, um, doesn't have St. Thomas in it, um, but they're happy to to sort of. Be kind of, kind of what like maybe like the ODAK is, where it's like it's everyone's really competitive with each other, um, but you don't have that opportunity to to send a team deep into the postseason. I just think it's really tough to to kick St. Thomas out for that reason, especially when it's a core charter member of a conference that doesn't really have a, another place it can go that's a perfect
0: fit. Although there are some pretty good options. Well, I mean, there's at least one pretty good option, I guess. Um, when I, we were trying to identify where St. Thomas could go, you know, there's basically only one other conference in Division Three that uh, would make any sense, and it does seem like the WIAC is open to taking a non-Wisconsin school. Hey, where are you going to school next year? Sure. Wisconsin. Wisconsin? Big school. As a full member. Uh, the WIAC has had and does currently have... Uh, Conference uh, affiliate members that are not in the state and are not state schools, and uh, from every indication it uh, seems that they would be open to Having Saint Thomas, Saint Thomas would help them in football. We talk about the Wyak uh, kind of annual scheduling problems. It's hard for those football teams to find three Division three opponents to play in the off in the in the non conference schedule. This would take one of those games. Um, you know, frankly, the Wyak has had trouble fielding enough baseball programs to get an automatic bid. I know this isn't a baseball podcast, but that is a uh, that's definitely a consideration. Um, and they would add to uh, you know the uh, the to the WIAC in ice hockey as well, uh, but that's basically about it. Uh, there's not a real NAIa presence around here. Uh, there's uh, Division two could work. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but if, you know if if the if people think that the University of Saint Thomas being a mid-sized Catholic university. In uh, you know, in a large city like Marquette or something like that, and thinks they should go Division One, it would take twelve years of transition through Division Two, then to get to Division One. It's that's virtually uh, that that's a that's a long that's a long time to wait, folks. Uh, imagine what you were doing twelve years ago. Um, the reason why Division Two might work and might not work is there is a conference in this area that has. Uh, some similar type schools, they have uh, the Minnesota state schools in it, and also the folks like, um, uh, gosh, Concordia St. Paul, Augustana of uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, I think that's where they are, uh, has been in that league. The other Augustana, you know, the other Augustana Vikings, uh, they've been in that league. Um, so there's a home for them, but there's not a home for hockey in Division Two for anybody, because there's basically no Division II hockey. So it's a... As much as uh, Chris Martin just said that, you know, conference decisions are often based around all sports. This is really about football, because as you said, St. Thomas has been the dominant force in the MIAC and the all sports rankings and the Commissioner's Cup or whatever for 10 years. But it wasn't until they started beating uh, other football teams handily on a regular basis and humiliated St. Olaf 97 to nothing a couple of years ago that this became a conversation.
1: And if, if that's the sole reason, you know, that, that seems a little
0: petty. Can I use a word there?
1: Sure. Because co- conference, conference affiliation is made up of so much more than just uh, football games and football scores. Um, it, it affects all sports. Your, your number, especially if you have a good, nice even number or a good number where you're around 8 or 9 or 10 schools in a conference, for football, especially, that's great because your your scheduling is basically done. You add one non conference game, you know, you're good. Um, I think that's a perfect number for football. You start getting down to seven or six, where now you have to schedule four and five non conference games, and that that's really tough. So in this case, you know, losing one school, I think, wouldn't crush the Mayak. The Mayak survived when uh, when it lost.
0: McAllister
1: for the complete other reason,
0: and they think they might get. They think McAllister might come back in if St. Thomas were out. Never mind the fact that McAllister jumped out because they were getting obliterated by another school in the Mayak, not St. Thomas.
1: And the D two point that you make, you know, the the other thing to that is somebody has to fund the scholarships. Mm-hmm. So if it even if a D through D two football program has to take thirty six scholarships and break that up over a ninety man or However, 250-man, not 200 150 or 200-man football roster, <laughs> which there are rosters in D3 that, that reach 250, and I, I don't think St. Thomas was quite there. But um, somebody, that money still has to come from somewhere. And it also has to come from somewhere for baseball and softball and basketball and ice hockey and all that stuff too. So it, it's a significant investment to jump to D2 if you're, if you're going to do that, if you're going to jump to D2 and be a scholarship-level program.
0: Well, there will probably be more about this. Uh, there will be a president's meeting sometime, I believe, still in the month of May. We'll have a lot more to talk about. Uh, if we find out anything about it, they are not, of course, state institutions, so they're not they're not subject to open records laws, right? We can't file a <laughs> Freedom of Information Act request on them, so, uh, you know, we can only hope that... Uh, alumni of schools uh, email their presidents and get responses like the guy who, uh, and and send them to the newspaper like the guy from Augsburg did. Now's the time on Sprockets when we dance. Now's the time of the podcast where we dive into Twitter. We know that uh, even if we take a month off, you still have questions, and we thank you for that. So we throw that reminder out to hit us up when it's time for uh, Keith and me to step into the studio. And our question on this podcast comes from Jason Rudolph, M.D., which is uh, at all sports underscore MD asking historically, is it better for teams to play tougher competition for their out of conference games or schedule an easy win? Hobart scheduled NJAC empire eight while union went the other direction. Well, um, I'm going to, I'm going to let Keith handle this in a second, but uh, I've always been of the mindset that you should schedule the best team that you can beat. Mm. That's good. But that does
1: lead to Mount union and Wesley and, Linfield and Mary harden baylor and harden simmons all having to try to figure out how they can play each other or you, or you have, you know, series where like Mountain Union and Rose Holman and Mountain Union and Averitt sign up for a home and home because uh somebody is willing to play them out there, but it's it, it's it's not a rival or not a game that helps either team and I I like to see non-conference games where you're playing somebody that's at your level the best team you can beat is a good um, barometer you know sometimes you're scheduling three and four years out and programs go through big big ups and downs in those times but generally uh, you can find somebody that that either offers a kind of similar level of competition you need to get a push and a test especially if you are a team that plans to win the conference or hopes to win the conference and go on to the postseason i think it really benefits teams to play tougher competition because you win that game that may be the thing that gets you in as an at large if you, if you're not able to to win your conference remember you know when when we're sitting down at the end of the season and looking at these five primary criteria a lot of teams don't have a common opponent they'll have the pretty much the same win loss record 8 and 1 or 9 and 1 occasionally 8 and 2 um, and so those two of the five criteria come off the board right away. And to have a win over a regionally ranked opponent is such a huge thing, uh, because a lot of times it comes down to that and strength of schedule to to basically be the two strongest criteria to to help a program get into the postseason. So I love when teams play tough for competition, but I think you also have to factor in if you're a coach taking in taking over an 0 and 10 team. You, you want to build to where you're playing the the top level programs and you want to play someone that's, that's a little more on your level. And then a couple years later, if, as your program's creeping in the right direction, you add somebody that, that maybe is a top level program.
0: Hopefully that helps answer your question, Jason.
1: I mean, the crazy thing is the, 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 if we were to dig into the data, given the number of nine and one teams that are getting left out and the eight and two teams aren't even getting to the table, uh, the past few seasons, you may argue that the easiest schedule you could possibly play w- would help help you get in. But I think there are a couple of counter arguments to that. The year that Case Western Reserve, the year that center, um, those teams were um, put, you know, 10 and 0 or uh, Case Western Reserve end up losing a game. But, um with such low strength of schedules that they may not have gotten in as at large teams, even with the, uh, with, with undefeated records. So um, I, I think you, you know, it's just natural to want to push your team as much as it needs. And it's great for the, you know, as long as you can find a game, that's good for the fans, good for your program.
0: um, You want to play the best competition you can find. It's a good question. Union, just for the record this year for non-conference games has Westfield state, Anna Maria and Springfield. So that's a, two two schools from conferences in the bottom five or so, and Springfield's conference is not particularly great either so far, but at least Springfield has been competitive. Other notes before we go, we got a question about uh, the Cortica-Jug game. Uh, The uh, last check on that in terms of ticket sales was uh, more than 25,000 tickets had been sold, uh, and that was as of February. Uh, Some of the prime seats aren't even on sale yet and won't be until the fall. So expect that to give uh, the uh, Johnny Tommy game a good run for its money in terms of the all-time attendance record in Division Three. And then I have to, I don't know if I'd have to run a correction or just chat for a moment about uh, something I mentioned on last month's podcast. When Keith and I were talking about his work with uh, on the Street and Smiths uh, magazine preview, I threw out... Dominic DiRienzo is a guy who uh, is one of the other people who writes previews uh, in magazines and is one of those guys who covers Division Three once a year. Um, I got an email from Dominic DiRienzo. Here's the mail, it never fails It makes
2: me want to wag my tail When it comes, I want to whale.
0: Who listens to the podcast, which is uh, which, first of all, is is really nice. That's that's uh, that's that's very uh, that's very nice to hear. And I'm glad that he pays any attention to Division Three outside of the season. Keith and I have talked on this podcast before about how Dominic was one of the guys who, in the pre D3Football.com days, uh, was one of the few reporters who paid any attention to Division Three. Keith, you remember him writing a column for CBS Sportsline, right? Yeah. So the reason I used his name was because his is a name that has come up for over the course of 20 years. He and I and Keith all know what it's like to write a preview about a division that you don't follow and to do it, you know, four or five to six months before the season starts. So not to cast aspersions on Dominic. That's just the only name that uh, that you can come up with who's written them on a regular basis. So uh, I, I appreciated his uh, gracious response, and I figured I would just uh, offer a... Uh, mea culpa here on the podcast
1: yeah well good job i mean the the thing that you you bring up is um you know you're you're writing this and we're recording this for a essentially a a niche audience guys who uh, and, and women who uh, you know either have some interest in the school have a player have a a coach you know somebody that they know or, or went to one of these schools and it's uh it's weird because you feel like part of this kind of cool club where uh you have friends you know maybe nobody at work understands why you care so much about these this small college football team but somebody out there gets you and uh and that's us so we're glad that you join us and we're glad uh for anybody out there who's who's writing about it as long as they're uh you know really paying close attention and trying to be as true to the game as possible indeed
0: Uh, and this was d3football.com around the nation podcast number 237 released on May 22nd of 2019 thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage on d3football.com through the rest of this offseason if you like this podcast you know how to do this you don't have to give us any money we're not asking for money we don't have uh, membership levels We, we don't have a Patreon we probably should maybe we'll talk about that sometime wait just because this is a pledge break don't fast forward that DVR
1: that's a good idea
0: so, but you can help us for free uh, by liking our podcast, rating it in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or, you know, any of the places where podcasts are available. Tell your friends about it. Tell your fellow students, alumni, tell your fans about it. Your head coach that listens? Tell your fans to listen to this podcast. It's super helpful to us. Anything that helps other Division three football fans find it will help us keep doing this podcast as our full-time day job's threaten to consume us you can reach us to talk more about division three football on twitter using the d3 fb hashtag i'm at d3 football keith is at d3 keith we have a message board devoted to division three sports did you know you can join the conversation by registering to post at d3 boards.com by the way that's d3 dot com, as in message boards you can also follow us on facebook The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, and you can find him at DJMentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Nate Milne and Chris Martin, and sports information director Mike Falk for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You know, it's still off-season, but there's still stuff going on. We, uh, you will still find a new podcast from us. Yeah, I think on a monthly basis, especially now headed into the summer where things might be more sane, and we have to start uh, ramping up stuff for kickoff, so keep an eye out on that. If you don't know what kickoff is, that's a whole other podcast, so go listen to something from last August, I guess.
1: I was right there with you when you said the. The day job threatens to consume us.
2: There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.